Hey everyone, John and Andrew here. Welcome to the podcast. On today's episode, fathers and sons. Stiff upper lips. And no better, do better. This is Obstacle Course. Here we go. Andrew, we're doing the intro with the guest in the room. I know. What are we doing? He's right here. <laughs> First time ever. Yeah, but as we've spoken about in the past, it would be maybe more awful to speak negatively about <laughs> yeah. somebody... And they only find, yeah, and they only find out when they listen to the episode. <laughs> but um, now we can just speak negatively with him in the room. Yeah, part of being vulnerable. <laughs> yeah, there he is. So Chris Wilkinson is our guest today. Um, we had an amazing conversation about about a lot, and, and much of it centered on, around masculinity, identity, and uh, repressing emotions. Mm-hmm. So uh, we we start off by Chris's account of, of losing his father quite recently it was uh, amazing how willing you were um to go into this topic when it's when it's still pretty fresh it's just a few months old I, I know i wouldn't have been been ready yet um it took me years well and one of the hats that chris wears besides being the owner of um, nurse next door vancouver island is he writes a monthly column for the couch and citizen and he's been doing that for about 13 years um, and, and this column in particular was about his father's passing and he wrote it right almost, you know, in time when it was happening and it was a very vulnerable and courageous thing to do and very unmanly. And I say that deliberately because that's, that's not something that men typically do is just share their emotions or it's, we're taught not to. Yeah. And so this conversation really, you, you'll hear the passion. You're going to hear some emotion. I tear up at the end, which I guess is fairly usual. <laughs> um, and, and it's just because. Uh, we believe here in this room that that's something that's a sign of strength. And mm-hmm. if, if you're to take anything away from this episode, I hope that you'll sit, you'll start to normalize real human emotion. Whether you're a man, woman, woman, doesn't matter. We're emotional people. We're rational people. We need to show all of that. Yeah, we're, we're rounded people. And when we only express, as men, when we only express the emotion of anger or nothing at all, that's quite damaging and, and a big part of us is is being withheld and and that can create long-term health negative health effects and impair relationships um we do focus on on men in this conversation and there there could be some people out there thinking you know that there's a pretty common narrative that men have been in a, a dominant role in society in, at least in western society for hundreds of years um and and yes that that may be true. You know, we're not having this conversation about men um, struggling with emotions because women have it so good or anything like that. And it's, I thought it was important to say this because this conversation is, is strictly kind of in this realm uh, because men, as, as we can all attest to, have challenges being ourselves, uh, being emotional, being vulnerable. And this has a huge impact on everyone you know, if men were okay with processing emotions and didn't resort to anger, then how much less spousal abuse would there be? How many less angry men out there might there be? How much less liquor would be being, you know, sold and, you know, drunk? <laughs> yeah, I, we, we didn't talk about this. We, we just no. had a conversation after the, the episode and, and maybe we'll leave that for, for round two with Chris. But, you know, a lot of men, rather than facing emotions neutralize them and and booze is definitely one of the go-tos for for that um so yeah we we all get pretty raw in this conversation um i think there's gonna there's 
a lot of men out there who will relate to the stuff that we were struggling with and we're talking about. And, you know, anyone else listening to the conversation is going to probably have a, a man in their lives that they can relate this sort of stuff to. So, so I hope that it's, it's useful for people. I, I hope that you, uh, you hear the realness and, and the vulnerability that was in the room here because it was, um, pretty impactful for, for me and, and I think yourself as well, John. We went there today, folks, and we hope you can come there too. Yeah, the tea is part of it. That's kind of that's all we really come here for is just to drink some tea. I'm in. If we're gonna have a conversation too, all the better. It's the yeah. ritual. <laughs> we like the ritual. John loves the ritual. He's a man of routine. I came from ritual. Yeah, with religion. True. Right, and that's one thing I discarded and then took back because I needed like, to oh, replace it with something yeah. just different. It is right. Yeah. We break bread. Well, we don't have bread. What kind of tea is it? Uh, what is it? Tiger stuff. Bengal spice. Yeah. Oh yes. I think it's just herbal, no caffeine even. No, Correct. No, I, I even though I do feel like I'm perking up. Well, that's just it's the being around, around us. Being around. You tell us. <laughs> it's after hearing about yeah. Andrew's uh, 75 <laughs> day thing, you're like, Ooh. yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's contagious. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, we have already started recording, and that was fun. So we might just uh, include that. But if we don't, I want to just take this moment to introduce you and to welcome you, Chris. Uh, Chris Wilkinson is here with us today, and, and we've been looking forward to this conversation for a few weeks now. And um, it's a topic that's super relevant to all three of us. Um, I mean, and, and we're going to get into just the um, the identity the identity of a, of a man in our our current time as well, which I think uh, you know at least fifty percent of our listeners probably either are a man or know a man. So I think it's gonna, maybe even I think higher. Those stats are right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, this is going to... I think I read that yesterday as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I pulled it off Wikipedia. Um, yeah, I think this is going to be a really, really awesome conversation. So thanks for being here. It's really my pleasure. Thank you, fellas. Yeah. So I think where we're going to start is you you do some writing for The Couch and Citizen, which is the... There was an article from August um, that, that really was the, the birth of this conversation. So um, do you want to just tell us a little bit about the the writing that you do and and as you were saying earlier it's it's evolved quite a bit um a monthly article that started 13 years ago is that correct yeah close to maybe even 14 years ago but it started with a fitness origin I was working at a, a local gym with some family and had the opportunity to come up to write an article on fitness and health and initially that that feeling of oh my goodness can i do that and then yeah i want to do that it sounds like a lot of fun and it reminded me of sort of writing assignments but on something i was interested in so right yeah so it started back then and and it's basically been monthly for the last several years and the different iterations of it along the way moving from fitness and then as in 2008 when my ex-wife my wife at the time we started a home care company and it it transitioned quite quickly to talking about seniors health and um, some home care related stuff and then what it's morphed into now is a bit more of a broader umbrella where it's happier aging and I think for me that feels like a really good sweet spot because I, I can write about seniors care and, and my staff look after seniors but I want to write about something bigger that maybe impacts a bigger group of people and 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 so writing about happier aging is a lot of fun for me because that I mean, what doesn't fit under happier aging, right? Totally. I, I think we're all aging. That that stat is even higher than 50%. I think it's yeah. 100% of us. <laughs> we are all aging as we speak. I heard that. Yeah. Yeah, I I assume that's true. 
but I, I try and uh, live in denial. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still trying to run alongside my employees that are half half as young as me, yeah. 20s, and I'm like, I got to keep up with them. That is so, the first stage of grief, which we'll we'll get to. It is, yeah, denial. <laughs> yeah, um, which we can kind of transition to that now, and and the tone of the conversation is probably going to change a little bit here. This is um, it's incredibly courageous that you're willing to go into this territory. Um, because your your dad passed away not very long ago in in the grand scheme of things, so you wrote, you wrote an article on August twentieth of this year, mm-hmm. um, and you want to just tell us uh, maybe what was running through your head when you were writing that article? Yeah, well, in the week and a half before I wrote that column, I was up in Terrace visiting my brother, and my my two sons and I were up visiting and dad had been moved into complex care a handful of months before that we got back on the weekend and on the monday morning i got the phone call that dad's got a fever and his dementia had progressed a lot over the last year and a half to the point where he wasn't vocal he he wasn't really interacting much anymore and physically he was confined to a wheelchair and not able to look after himself so it was kind of in this holding pattern for a while. And so when I got that call the Monday morning that he had a fever, you know, the alarm bells go off a little bit that, okay, <clears throat> the situation's going to change here. And it was within a couple of days that the word palliative came out. And, and so I obviously wrestled uh, with that a lot, as we all would. And it came to the, the following weekend after we were back. And this was the, I believe, August 15th, 16th weekend. And... I really wanted to be present for him and be with him because his mom, my Nana, who was someone very important to me, I missed the opportunity to visit her before mm-hmm. she passed and, and that always something that, that weighed on me. So spending a lot of time with him that weekend and knowing that I needed to write a column Monday morning or have it, it was due Monday morning and came out on the 20th, I had been listening to some of your podcasts and some of the very courageous guests that you guys have had on and it just kind of clicked that I want to write about dad. And so, uh, John, I think you'll appreciate this. I start with a little quote from the matrix movie. Yeah. I noticed the movie guy. Yeah. And (laughs) love that. (laughs) And so matrix movie. Awesome. But, uh, going through that experience, those five days before he passed that Monday night on the 17th of August, I was telling myself that I want to be here with dad when he transitions. Mm -hmm. Looking back on it and reflecting, that's kind of what I wanted. And dad was a very humble guy, Mm -hmm. guy that smiled a lot, was just happy to be around his family and his grandkids. And how it all came about was I was writing the column through the weekend and putting some ideas down and kind of in present tense and was with him the whole day on Monday from about 11 in the morning till eight at night. And then I left cause I wanted to go watch my son play hockey. It was his first on ice with his new team. And it wasn't half an hour or an hour after that I, that he would have transitioned based on what time they told me that they found him. So I, I like to think about and who really knows, but I like to think that, he was waiting for me so he could have his own moment because he never liked to put anybody out. Mm. He Mm -hmm. was always the guy that was so gracious and um, 
I don't, I don't honestly know whether it was 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, because by the time the, the nursing staff went in there, it was about an hour after I'd left. And then I got the call shortly after that. But just the way it all flowed that night too, is that I left and, and told him I loved him and went to my son's hockey in Mill Bay. Then told my son when he was coming off the ice that I'll be in the truck. And within a minute of sitting in the truck, got the phone call from the facility that he'd passed. And it was just, you know how funny things kind of flow sometimes. What was your initial feeling when you got the call? It was this weird combination of not being surprised, mm -hmm. but the finality was there. Mm -hmm. There was some numbness for sure too. Uh, certainly a bit of sadness mixed in there. And when my son came and sat down just a few minutes later and was privy to the conversation, he started to, I could see him getting emotional as well in that moment. I think that impacted me just as much because yeah. of my two sons, he's the lesser emotional. Mm. And, and um, you know, you never prepared for a moment like that. But I also think that with dementia, because you tend to lose people, people a layer at a time, right? It's like mm. peeling the, the layers of the onion and the more recent memories leave first and they've got those long-term memories that are sort of the core and a family's grieving process might mirror that in that we were grieving for him in the year and a half yeah. and grieving for ourselves in the year and a half beforehand. So the, the tears didn't really come through until later that evening when I was by myself. And then the next morning had some tears as well for dad. And then since then, it's just sort of been, I guess, gradually processing it and getting used to the new normal. So thank you for, for sharing that and, and going there. Um, just want to say that, first of all, it does take a lot of courage to do so. A um, couple of things come up for me. One being that um, the tears came when you were by yourself. And I wonder if, uh, what, what, what do you think might be the, the reason for that? It, it, do you think it, that's when you were ready or do you think it, was protecting other people around you what what do you think there might have been the cause there mm -hmm. great insight in your question i'll go with option b having my older son there and wanting to be that brave face yeah father for your son there's likely something to that uh, there could also be that it just takes a bit of that time to sink in too and it was about an hour later that um, some of that emotion came out and I also, you know, dad never wanted to put anyone out. And part of it is wanting to honor that because I know that he wouldn't want us to be sad and he wouldn't want us to mope. Um, and yet, strangely, that also fits into the don't show emotion as much, right? Like it's also part of that same mentality and, and attitude. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the, the there's a few powerful parts of your story, Chris, but the, the part that stood out to me is is we're in a death-denying culture. We've talked about this on the podcast many times. Um, you know, we, we we kind of know we're not immortal, but sort of live like we are. Um, mm -hmm. we're, we're almost fixated on health, which which is which is good. 
Um, unless it's a denial, unless it's like, well, maybe if I just keep doing these things, I will, I really will live forever, but we know we won't. And so, um, we tend to really not want to talk about death and we definitely don't want to be around it. And and even hear parents that like, don't allow their kids to, to, you know, be there with the, say grandma or grandpa who's passed away. Mm-hmm. They, they, they keep them away. And, and I just really believe that, um, it's, it's probably personal, but I, I really think there's a power in being there in the end. Um, I was with my dad. I was laying beside him in the end. I believe my grief was made more manageable because of it. Mm -hmm. Um, You being there in the end. um, I know Andrew was there in in some of the final moments. And and I just think, I think there's power in that. And, And I know there's people who make the decision not to be. And, and I think we're going to probably talk about the right way to grieve and spoiler alert, there is no right way to grieve Mm -hmm. by the way, everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, but everyone needs to go their own path. But, but I know that for those people wondering, like, is it, could it be powerful to kind of be there in the end? It was for me. And Mm -hmm. I, and I I think you might say the same, um, just be and and why just the fun, the finality of it, right? Because our brain can do weird things in grief, mm-hmm. you know. And and I know some people who who almost months and years later still sort of feel like their their loved one is still out there in some strange way, yeah. you know. And I've wondered is it, is it because you you didn't kind of have that finality in the end? And so I I just want to speak to like that can be a powerful thing. I'm not saying everybody needs to be there in the end. It may be too much for you in the moment, but but definitely. Give people the option, I would say. Well, and everybody's um, background contributes to what their experience is with sure. it too, right? Yeah. Various people have had experience of death in their family mm-hmm. at maybe a younger age. Exactly. I, I only remember one grandparent at when I was a, a, at a younger age that passed away and, and, and there was very little discussion around it. So mm-hmm. f- for me, I think more of my learning around death actually came from running a home care company and talking with some amazing nurses that, you know, you meet these nurses and caregivers that have this amazing ability and desire to want to be in palliative caregiving situations because they, they find it an honor to be there and other caregivers are afraid and don't want to be in that situation. And that's okay too. But I think I really connected with those nurses when we, when we were first getting started that really like you actually want to be around death and and you want to and they start using terms like supporting the transition Mm -hmm. i'm like tell me more about that yeah that is very interesting and i think you know none of us truly know not having gone through it my opinion is is that if if a person's comfortable around it and wants to and believes that maybe there's something afterwards Mm -hmm. then it takes a lot of that feeling of finality away and it's just maybe more of an end of a story or end of a chapter perhaps sure. rather than the end of the whole book yeah which is a, a great reference so that's how your article started with um the matrix quote about uh in every beginning there's an end something of that nature mm-hmm. um and it's a it's a great quote and it it's it's true in in some senses but at the same time our lives begin and end but it's just part of the like a much bigger story that doesn't really have a concrete beginning and end Mm -hmm. so like you know the the fact that one life begins and ends doesn't actually create a conclusion it's just 
we often look from kind of our own perspective or we, we, most of us only ever really look from our own perspective. It's pretty difficult to do otherwise, Yeah. but it, it changes things when, you know, the, the cycle of life continues. Even, you know, we don't know what happens after, after people pass. We don't, we, we see things happen in bodies and then the bodies become part of something else. You know, that that's how, that's how, you know, the planet works really yeah. well and we know from anthony robbins one of the six basic needs that he talks about is significance yeah for sure and i have some of that and i feel like i want to have a significant life while i'm here and if mm. i don't you know there's some emotions that one would struggle with one mm-hmm. does struggle with when you think about that so if there's anybody else that has feelings of i want to i want to have a meaningful life i want to have some significance then the idea of just living a life and then dying and it's all done doesn't sound very appealing. Yeah, for sure. Well, and when we embrace death, which yeah, I did say that, listeners, when we embrace death, mm-hmm. it really adds that significant significance to life, especially if your your particular belief is there's nothing after death. You know, I, I have lots of friends and family who believe there's nothing after death, and I'm kind of still agnostic on the whole thing. Mm. I think maybe that's only, I'm going to you know put this out there, that might be the only real true position because we don't quite know. We just yeah. don't know. And certainty is, is caused a little bit of problems in the world. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to say a few problems. Um, but, but I just think... Um, yeah, I can. Well, we can end the yeah. conversation or the end of the debate right here. Yeah. Energy cannot be created nor destroyed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, lean into our physics. No, for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Where does the energy go then, right? Like, no. is it just lost as heat and light or is it just. Mm-hmm. So it something continues. Somewhere? Interesting. You know. Interesting conversation. Yeah, yeah no, it really for sure. Is. Um, and one that everyone has their own opinion on. And, and there's no way of really fully disproving any belief um and that's okay it's important to disagree and still respect someone else's but the belief is critical because they do talk about that in grieving that belief is what helped people because they did all this research and they're like boy you know people who who pray tend to manage the grief um easier Mm -hmm. and they're like why is that you know if you can't prove that whatever they believe in is real and what the scientists discover it's the actual belief in the brain that that that's healing mm-hmm. and so it's the importance of sort of honoring our truth in that moment and not running from it and, yeah. not, and not denying the death and not you know i i can't be there because it's it's going to be too much but to have the courage to be there in the moment i think that's the that's the part that's that's going to help us through mm-hmm. it and most people this you know try and well not most people a, a lot of people you know, we, we want to escape pain. We want to, or we're going to talk about this later, repress things. Mm-hmm. Act like, you know, we'll stiff upper lip. You know, I'll just have a scotch or two and I'll be fine. We don't need to talk about it. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, toxic. Are you talking about a scotch or two right now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can't. I, but, uh, no, man, right. not for another the 72 challenge. days. Yeah. <laughs> Respect. Respect. Yeah. Um, so what you're really getting at, John, is acceptance. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a, it's a brilliant point that on both sides of death, whether you're experiencing a loved one passing or whether you're, you're the one who's going to pass, acceptance is such a huge part of it. Um, because fighting, just like, you know, we, we talked about this with sleep many episodes ago, fighting the ability to fall asleep actually makes it worse. Mm. Um, fighting the fact that our end is coming 
is going to create more conflict and negative energy in ourselves. Um, so you've, you've written about acceptance. You've written about the five stages of grief and acceptance is the final stage. And in one of your articles, you actually say that not everyone gets there. Um, so I, I was curious, a question that I had for you, Chris, is where do you think you might be with your, with your dad's passing currently? I used to look at the grief cycle as a process that you'd go through the steps in a serial fashion. Yeah. And that is not true. And John alluded to it a moment ago and another caregiver that I just heard speaking recently said the same thing is that grief can come out at any time, mm-hmm. right? Sadness can come out at any time. I think it was actually um, an interview with Joaquin Phoenix and his family about river mm-hmm. passing. There was yeah. a really interesting interview and, and they were talking about, I think the mother talked about how, you know, that sadness can come out at any time. And mm-hmm. I, as someone who can be really good at, covering up emotions and sweeping it under the rug that intention to try and not to do that is where I'm at Mm -hmm. and that intention to want to go through the process and want to experience it even though maybe I want to continue working on getting better at that I think that's the process for me right now and questions that I had in my head in the first few days after was shouldn't I be more sad Mm -hmm. Like, is it okay to have good moments? And I imagine those are fairly common thoughts. Um, You know, Heather, you remember Heather's episode, you know, way back in episode nine. Talk about courage. Yeah, I actually was re-listening to that recently. And um, as Brock just passed, uh, the three-year anniversary was this week, right? And um, she, she talked about that. And she said in her mind... It was the scene out of the movie where she falls to her knees and this and she's sobbing over this man she truly loved and lost. Mm-hmm. And when that didn't happen, she felt like um, she was doing something wrong yeah. and she felt guilty. And what what she shared in that in that episode was she came to realize that, like you were saying, Chris, uh, grief is a journey that is not a fixed beginning and end. Mm-hmm. It's not a linear walk up the mountain. It's, you know, a couple steps forward, back, sideways, slips, times where you're just laying on the path. Yeah. Um, and there's no right and wrong. That's true. And uh, yeah, it was a beautiful point that, that she had brought up. And you, you're saying you're experiencing the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think part of those thoughts that were going through my head in the first 48 hours in particular was you see movies or other things where it's about you know, that person's not going to see someone graduate or not going to see someone get right. married or yeah. these big life events. And, mm-hmm. and I just didn't connect with that. It was more about when dad would come into a room, he'd have the greatest smile on his face and you could see that his insides were lit up mm-hmm. and he was just happy to be there around mm-hmm. his family. Mm-hmm. And he'd come in and say, hey, gang. <laughs> And, that, and it's that moment that I started getting emotional about, sure. especially in the first couple of days, because it's those moments where it was like him and his essence. Yeah. That was mm-hmm. dad. Yeah. And, and that's yeah. like, whether it's a spirit or a soul coming in the room, what he brings with him are more of those things that, you know, we'll continue to miss a lot. Mm-hmm. That's a beautiful point. Yeah. Yeah. And 
I completely agree. Um, and and w one hopeful thing, um, as we're getting a little bit dark here, um, is that those things are what are passed on to our children. And so, you know, you have that spirit as you come into a room now. Um, and, and, you know, parts of, parts of our parents, grandparents are, are within us now, yeah. which is, um, a, a legacy that we can allow them to endure with. Yeah. Can well, I share a quick story? Yeah, man, that? that's why you're here. <laughs> one of my, one of my stories that I always used to tell myself and, you know, stories I think always kind of remain, but was that I'd never be like my dad. Growing up as a kid, we, we lived with our mom. Like my, uh, we lived with our parents. I was three when my parents divorced and I remember we were heading for the airport and I remember sobbing my eyes out. And mm -hmm. so I lived with my mom for the next, well, through high school and beyond. So um, not having dad there, you know, that's a whole other thing I'll get to in a moment. But what I recall is like mom always was trashing dad and saying really negative things about him. And that was tough. Uh, looking back, that was tough. And I, I, but you know, when you get told things repeatedly, we know how that goes, especially when you're young, you're so impressionable is that you believe it. Yeah. And so when dad as a businessman, like I always told myself, I'd never, never be a businessman and, and you know, <laughs> won't grow up like dad. And then finally you get to a point where you start to think for yourself a little bit more and, <laughs> and wow, it's been such a process, but I realize that I've got a lot of dad in me. Like, and I'm really grateful for the gifts that he's given me. And, and to bring it back to how he entered a room and what he brought with him into a room, I couldn't be more happy that I've got some of that from him. And that's one of the greatest gifts he's mm -hmm. ever given me. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Um, and it, it can work. <laughs> I mean, we can fight that as well. Um, because there's parts of our parents that maybe we don't want to bring on with us. As a kid, that's an insult when someone's like, you're like your dad. You know? And often when Angie says it, she's like, well, that's something your dad would have done. I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> it's built into the teenage years, isn't it? Yeah. Genetically, like my boys do not want to be me right no. now. Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah. But the expression goes, at some point, we all just turn into our parents. Yeah, no, yeah. for sure. And for some reason, we all cringe when thinking about that. <laughs> But, um, but yeah, we, we, uh, it's important to, even if there's negative parts that we don't want to become, it's important to recognize that there were positives and there were yeah. lots of, um, gifts that, that, um, are, are who we are now. I got a letter yeah. from, he owned, um, Wilkinson business machines in Terrace. It was one of those staple offices in Terrace. It was around a long time and, and he hired a number of people. And one thing I, that. I didn't fully realize until recently as I got a couple of letters from two people that used to work with him and they're married now. I'm not sure I was too young to remember if they were married at the time, but they each sent me a letter together and talked about, they, they called him Wilkie, which, you know, that yeah. was his nickname and, and you another too. gift yeah. here. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah. one of the letters spoke about how, he loved to take care of his staff mm -hmm. and that they were kind of like family to him. And I just love that. I, I read that letter twice because I loved reading that. And that's, I'm like, hmm. mm -hmm. 
apple doesn't fall far from the tree. No. Like I think it's an honor to be able to hire people and have them as part of your company. I'm sure you feel the same. If you've mm -hmm. hired people, I know you have, John. Absolutely. And, and um, you know, they're like an extension of your family or your work family. They and, really are. And yeah. uh, just more and more seeing pieces of dad in there. And, mm. and then I guess to tie it back to what we were talking about earlier is like, you don't, you never lose the person, right? Like no. you can't see them, but they're with you and, and different pieces like that are ways that that manifests itself. Well, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I was going to bring up uh, movies speak to me more than probably anything. And they're, they're the beautiful Pixar movie. They're all great. And they all make me sob like a baby. <laughs> I think they're made for kids, but no, they're not. That's the genius behind them. And it's like the Simpsons. It's oh, just yeah. as much for us. No, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, the kids, you know, laugh at the hijinks and we get the higher humor, you know, but sometimes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so with Pixar, there's, there's a great movie, you know, listeners, if you're wondering, how can I begin to talk to my children about death? And, and well, first of all, go listen to Heather's episode again, because mm -hmm. uh, she talks about that, uh, how, how she talked to Isaac about it. But also the movie Coco. I don't know if any if you if you guys have seen it, but it's a beautiful, beautiful movie all about death, and it's like a big gamble that why would Pixar do a dark movie like Death? Is that the um, one the Mexican the Mexican Dave? culture? Love and, that and, movie. Oh, and the ending. Oh my God, man! You all get emotional just thinking about yeah. it. But basically, you know, without spoiling anything, the the main truth that comes across is the way we keep our family immortal is by remembering them. Mm -hmm. And, and in fact, um, when they don't remember them, that's when they begin to literally just like pass away, yeah. um, you know, and, and, and um, they're no longer in the afterlife. They, mm -hmm. they, they're, they're gone forever. And it was just such a beautiful memory of just like, you know, our dads are all gone, but in a way they're, they're immortal in the way that we still, we still remember them at times. We sit down to turn on the football game. I feel dad there every time, you know, I, um, it's it's un, unexpected. I, I I catch a scent or a color, and all of a sudden, Dad's there, and it, it just it's unconscious, and then it becomes conscious, and that's the beauty and 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 difficulty of grief. Yeah, but it's the keeping that memory alive that that keeps the that keeps them immortal, and um, it's it's on us to do it, and it's by doing what you did. That's why that's why you're here, telling that story to sit down and and talk about those those very final moments that are. Um, private mm -hmm. but you're willing to share that and go that and men like men we we don't have a great track record of doing that <laughs> yeah and good point and yeah. we're gonna kind of shift fully into that conversation soon but i i thought a, a way of, of really navigating that well and and john you brought up children grieving and chris you have a 13 year old and 17 year old i believe mm -hmm. both boys both boys and how how would you like them to go through the experience of grief? Great question. I, <clears throat> I don't know. I, I haven't read the handbook on how to help your kids grieve through your dad's death. Maybe that's an opportunity there. Yeah. <laughs> but I think in, in the, the week after he passed, I really just most days wanted to check in with them and make sure that I brought it up in some way for them gave them an opportunity to talk about it and whether they chose to take that opportunity or not, I didn't want to force it. Um, but I felt like that was the right thing to do is to not let those moments slip by mm -hmm. and offer for them to share how they're feeling. And again, my older boys a little, a little more, um, are a little less apt 
to to share how he's feeling. He's harder to read for me, I find. And I thought it was really important to not only give them the opportunity to express how they're feeling, but to also honor Grandpa Bo was how everybody knew him, Bob, Grandpa Bo. And Grandpa Bo would come with us to dinner at OJ's in Duncan. Mm -hmm. And so um, my boys and I made sure that we took a, a dinner out at OJ's about a week later and just raised our glasses to, to mm -hmm. Grandpa Bo. And, mm -hmm. and they don't talk about it. I haven't seen no. them bring it up. I try to watch for behaviors. If I notice anything, they, they seem to be doing pretty well. You never know. Mm -hmm. but so far so good yeah so speaking for myself I experienced a fair amount of death early in my life um, younger than than your boys were with an aunt um, mm -hmm. a couple of grandparents one uh, tragic car accident which still um, haunts our family I would say mm -hmm. um, I'm just thinking back. I, I'm like two rooms away from uh, where I experienced it. So mm -hmm. it's uh, it's still real mm -hmm. for sure. Um, and then, yeah, my dad's passing at a, when I was just 30. Um, so definitely experienced a lot of grief and didn't really have any roadmap. Mm -hmm. um, don't think, I mean, judging myself saying I, um, I don't think I coped well is probably not fair to myself because you don't really want to, as we talked about earlier, like grief is, is not really, there's not a right way to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, we weren't, uh, as a family, very comfortable with having those conversations. Um, especially my dad never spoke about really emotions whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, it's, it creates problems in our, in our culture. It, mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I did a bunch of reading on this yesterday, so I've got some data that I'll pull up and, um, but the the baseline is that men are are kind of trained through uh, through growing up through adolescence not to process or not to talk about emotions. Almost that you're weak if you have emotions. Sure. Um, cultural icons like John Wayne or James Bond or Superman. Those are the kind of people that are are you know the the prototypical, the essential man that um, that we look up to is, you know, reading comic books or, or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and the result of that is that we are unable to really identify our own emotions and, and definitely not um, speak well to them. And and there, there's health side effects, serious health side effects that are part of the reason that men live like four to six years less than women in, in our culture. Um, so I thought, you know, there's, I just said a lot. Um, so I just wanted to kind of bring that to the table and, and, and see what, um, see what we can do about that. You know what it makes me think of right off the bat is that that typical male pattern of yeah. not wanting to share stuff probably is correlated with, I got this, I can take care of this myself. I don't need to reach out. And the the real shame in that is that, and I've been there and I'm still there a lot of days, but you don't know what you don't know. And that, that idea of blind spots, right? And, That's right. and, and um, 
I work with Coach Sheila, who, you know, I'm yeah. not sure you met Sheila, yeah. but she's really great and, and a great listener. And, mm-hmm. and, and when you get to see what your blind spots are, you get to work on them. And I think yeah. it just ties into what you were saying there is that, you know, if you're trying to figure it out for yourself, good mm-hmm. luck. Yeah. It is hard. Yeah. And, and the, the first step to, uh, to growth is awareness. Like we can go through life with those blinders up and have no idea that things are even an issue. And then there's some serious health concern that comes up and, and maybe part of that, maybe the, the cardiac arrest that plagues men so much more than women is, is because we've got, you know, we've got so much closed up and and bottled Mm -hmm. up inside of us. And, and there's a, there's a trickle effect for sure. I was just going to say, man, like those, those figures that you put out there, the, the cowboy that always brings the cattle home, you know, and never, never whines or anything like that. Don't whine. You know, guys say that all the time. You know, it's like the, the, the part that seems to you know go over our heads is the fact that all these guys are like have their vices because, spoiler alert, they actually can't get through it. Yeah. They're not strong enough to get through it. Nobody is. You're not supposed to. You're not supposed to get through it by repressing it and denying it. So they're alcoholics. They're they're like, you know, smoking three packs a day. They're they're philandering, you know, because they can't get through it. Mm-hmm. And and that's when the cracks start to appear. But meanwhile, they're still, you know, buying into the delusion that like, you know, but at least I'm not sharing my emotions. At least I'm not like, you know, you know, uh, losing my emotions in front of somebody, you know. But but meanwhile, like mm-hmm. we all see the consequences of that and so it's like you're you're not only um you're not only perhaps lying to yourself um everyone else sees it and so mm-hmm. I, I just I, i'm kind of hitting this hard because I, I just feel like that is a major blind spot for for men and women i mean for all of yeah. us but it's a major blind spot the fact that we think that repression is a way through and it's manly and it's strong but it's like so calculatedly the opposite yeah that yeah. It, that is crazy that it's lasted this long in our human evolution and i want to pound my fist and say <laughs> it should stop because it's madness and and Andrew, but then the anger would just further enhance <laughs> that, that, that pattern well and anger is right. a great uh, uh, point to illustrate yeah <laughs> well yeah. and but it's also an emotion that boys are yeah. almost encouraged to have and, yeah. and so like right. we don't deny every emotion because we don't deny anger and like then how many men are sure. are using anger as kind of like only the emotion they're either like baseline okay or angry or frustrated yeah, yeah. so I, true. I like for myself that that so definitely true. came out um and and yet you look at those cultural figures like the only emotion that we would see out of them is anger or yeah. like yeah. you know killing somebody <laughs> and for any any right? male listeners and any listeners at all that are listening that are maybe seeing a pattern or you know that that pattern of i'll repress it i'll hold it in i got this and then there's a blow up mm-hmm. yeah and that was my mo for years right. would be anger and i played a lot of hockey and i would take it out on people yeah. on the ice there you go and you know that hockey sticks have been broken I, thousands of dollars of hockey sticks breaking it over the net or over the boards and golf clubs right <laughs> yes and in, in and, golf of all things goodness gentlemanly sports <laughs> yeah that's supposed Slight to relax english accent <laughs> yeah but those that that anger 
pattern. And if people can start to recognize that, you guys talk about awareness a lot. And I think that's where it starts, doesn't it? And anger is mm-hmm. also, um, you know, they, they write about that anger is not actually a primary emotion. It's, it's actually a secondary emotion that's masking a primary emotion, which is often sadness or fear. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and those are two things that men or a lot of people, but men in particular do not like to feel or, or, um, let other people see in them. Mm-hmm. We don't like to, we don't like people to know we're sad or scared. So we'll do anything yeah. to like, you know, keep, keep the uh, game going that no, 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 I, I got this, but then we're angry and it, and, yeah. and then our game's up and, and they know something's going on. Conversations like this, that if somebody listens to it and feels a, of a shift inside and mm-hmm. feels like it's okay to talk about it and maybe it's okay to get out of that because if we were having this conversation 15 years ago yeah. nobody's listening no no for sure yeah and, and a lot of labels would get thrown around and in some parts of society that would still be the case and, mm-hmm. and that's the problem but at least there is a bit of a shift going on and, and as you mentioned chris it starts with just a little bit of a shift inside because it's unrealistic to expect someone to go from completely repressing everything to being like full of emotion and comfortable with that but what it does take is that that first conversation it's we we talk about this with resilience training with with working out with um just having tough conversations it it starts with something small it doesn't start by like spilling your guts to your spouse or your kids or whoever it is about uh something you've been grieving for 20 years it starts with just a little bit of a conversation and and that's um, that's how change happens. It, sometimes there's really drastic change uh, overnight, but but most often there's something's building up. Um, John, you you brought up the gender um, part of the conversation earlier, and and because you know we're three men sitting around here talking about men and, and emotion and masculinity, and we're we're not saying that um, that women don't have their own challenges expressing feelings, and, and I'm I'm sure that is the case, but but. We, we are, um, we brought up data. We, we, uh, there's a quote um, from some research done by Harvard Medical School that boys are in fact more emotionally expressive than girls at a really young age, mm. just in how they, they relate to their parents and, mm. and um, just how they react. Uh, but, our, but culture actively yeah. negates the expression. And focuses so on tragic. on emotions like aggression. Oh, Crackpot institution that study came from. <laughs> yeah, Harvard. <laughs> yeah, who knows if they know what they're doing? But uh... that's so sad to me. Like I hear that, and I felt a pang of sadness. Mm-hmm. You know, because because it's like all these all these men, these these poets, these artists, these these men that that they could use their emotions to to make whatever they want to do in their life so much better are taught at a young age that that's nope sorry full stop that's not acceptable here you need to fall in line and just you know rage and get angry and you know and is that in the family setting school setting both i don't know yeah i right? i definitely think family and, and i'll pull up something else and and probably both and probably just cultural like what yeah. we were talking about with um with what we watch on tv or what we read about it and it goes back centuries mm-hmm. um but it, a new york times article that was entitled teaching men to be emotionally honest um mm. there's a story that uh from a, a teacher who is the also the an instructor a university instructor who is also the the writer of this article uh the story goes last semester a student in a masculinity course i teach showed a video clip she had found online of a toddler getting what appeared to be his first vaccinations off camera we hear the father's voice 
I'll hold your hand, okay? Then, as the sun becomes increasingly agitated, don't cry. Ah, big boy, high five, high five, say you're a man. And the kid says, I'm a man. The video ends with the whimpering toddler screwing up his face in anger and pounding his chest. I'm a man, he barks through tears and gritted teeth. Oh, what a visual. Hmm. God, gave me chills. So that's the kind of behavior that the father thinks he's doing the right thing. Yeah. There's no malice in that. There's there's no negativity. He just thinks this is what a man is. And that's the problem in our culture that being a man, sure, being tough, being able to handle adversity, those are good things. It's going to come to us, but but handling adversity by repressing everything, there's there's different ways of of coping with emotions and and repression is one of them, but mm-hmm. it's the worst one because it doesn't actually help us overcome the issue or, or, or deal with it effectively. Well, and Chris, like father to father here, Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but I'll be honest. When I think about my son, often what's been driving my behavior is to make sure that he's tough, Mm -hmm. that he's not able to be pushed around. And that's that. And so I feel like my job is to toughen him up. It's like, I'm, I'm, Andrew shares that New York Times story. I feel a pang of sadness. And then I think, but that's often what I do. And how many fathers say, you know what? All I hope for in my boy is that he's kind. Yeah. Right? Like that should be our job is that we're raising kind sons. Because guess what, boys? Women love kind men. (laughs) Women love kind men. And, And they don't even, they're not even expecting you to be the big tough guy who beats down the competition. They just want someone kind. And that is a toughness in itself. Mm-hmm. That might be the most tough thing you can do because it's, we don't often get credit for being kind. Yeah. You know, we, it's almost seen as a weakness. You know, it's almost like, you know, it, it's, it's just too bad. And, and, but I think that's probably our, our most important job as fathers is to raise kind kids. Yeah. I'm almost still stuck back at that, yeah. at that story, right? It's heartbreaking to hear that. It is. And yet it's not uncommon at all. And mm-hmm. I won't even say that you know, I would have been above that if I was in that situation, right? Because then the embarrassment and the vulnerability of being in that moment, this is my son and wanting to protect him. I think it's all well-intentioned, Yeah. right? It's all well-intentioned, but it comes out the wrong way. mm -hmm. And it it results in, in stuff like cardiovascular disease. And, uh, do you guys know suicide stats, um, in Canada, three to one, men to women wow. in the states four to one uh in russia and uh brazil and mexico five to one wow meant that many times more men than women are are um suicidal and that's not even talking oh, about stress God. no of burying yeah. that and no. that, you know stress yeah. really is the number one killer according to a lot of scientists and so the people that don't choose to go down that route but that carry it and mm-hmm. hold that stress, cardiovascular disease and absolutely cancer and dementia and all these diseases that are long-term chronic diseases of lifestyle and stress yeah. is and what we're learning, right? Well, we can't know why, why they took their lives. Presumably it had partly to do with the fact that they, had, they came to a hopeless point. Like they, mm-hmm. they can't see a future. And, and that's, that's just yet another stark realization that, that repression and thinking that you can be strong enough by doing the step of upper lip 
is is not possible. Yeah. You know, it results in disease, death, untimely death, um, or just an angry household, or raising kids who don't, you know, who don't, you don't have a mm-hmm. have a clear path because you're. Yeah, but I, isn't I it know. yet still the path of least resistance? Right. To go that route, to not express emotions. Right. Short term, maybe. Short term. Yeah. yeah. Short term, right? I when mean, you're it, faced with a dichotomy right in front of you, while well, that road is nice and paved, but that road's gravelly and hilly right, and doesn't right. look so good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty tapped out with life. Maybe I need to take the easier road. Good right point. Now. But but is that yeah. the easy road because that's how your neural pathways work? Because that's how you grew up and thought yeah. that was the easier way to go about it. Yeah. When in reality, if we're comfortable expressing emotions and don't feel like a pussy doing it, mm. maybe I'll let that out because. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, we can't even say that anymore. (laughs) I was honestly talking to myself on the drive down. Don't say that word. Yeah. 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 Right? For sure. But that's something that's... But we're also being honest here and being authentic. And you know Andrew's heart and he's not that kind of person. But it's just... It's part of who we are. It's it's part of the the kind of damaging words... It is. ...that are part of the masculine identity. Like, how many times have you heard that? Absolutely. It's in the top five of our vocabulary growing up, without a doubt. Exactly. And what's that mean when someone says that? Like, like that's something worth unpacking. When someone says, don't be a pussy. Or when you say, what's that mean? It means don't express emotions. Yeah. That's exactly what it means. Repress. Yeah. But people didn't know that word when they were young, so they they wouldn't say, hey, repress. No. (laughs) It's just not quite as much of a throwdown. Yeah. No. Right? And in hockey, I can imagine the stuff that's said <laughs> during, during the game, the locker room mm-hmm. talk. I mean, this is now yeah. beginning to go into the bigger conversations. Yeah. You know, speaking of speaking hockey. Speaking of bubbles. Yes. Yeah. But um, did you did you happen to catch the Ice Guardians documentary? No. That to me was, you know, I don't want to spend a bunch of time on this, but that basically they, they, they took some of the biggest NHL enforcers and did a documentary on what it's like being that enforcer. And every last one of those guys in tears talked about how it was the most difficult job that they ever had. They just saw it as a job. They didn't want to do it. They said that the guys they were fighting were friends. They're like, imagine that being your job. Like one guy said, he looked in the camera, eyes were like glass because he was like tearing up. And he's Mm -hmm. like, imagine if it was your job every single day to show up and fight the strongest person that you know and, Mm -hmm. and hopefully win. And that person may or may not be a close friend of yours. He's like, imagine, imagine how that would feel. And he's like, and I did that my whole career. So difficult. He's like, and I joined hockey because I love the game. Yeah. Yeah. And and it was a big eye opener for me because those are like the gladiators of today. Right. You won't imagine gladiators, you know, they're not going to be the type to like talk about how difficult it is or how their anxiety before every gladiatorial match gets out of control. You know, it's just like, no, just go. But that's just not the case. And, And you watch a show like that and you still have so much respect for them willing to do that for their teammates right the courage that it takes to do that every night yeah and what they're going through anxiety wise yeah the day of the game from absolutely. the moment they wake up to go yeah. through that uh, warriors absolutely is it right i mean there's lots of different angles to this but uh seeing those guys and how they talk about each other and have respect for each other and, it's like a brotherhood. And how many have had to rely on substance abuse oh, or yeah. and end up committing suicide? Um, Huge. It, it, it's part of it. And mm-hmm. that's that's the impact. And and really, like, sure, they're standing up for their, fe- or their teammates, but they're also 
you know, giving the crowd a show, just like in yeah, the you know Roman Colosseum. Are you not entertained? Exactly. Right. Yeah, and that's part of the conversation that we have to look ourselves in the mirror. Um, and what what are we really cheering for? And and what is the actual impact? You know, the, mm-hmm. these aren't. This is not special effects. <laughs> like that's real blood. The that's those are real bruises, and that those are real people that are killing themselves um, from having to play that role. And are we okay with that? And we're not quite because remember Dak Prescott, Cowboys quarterback, just came out two weeks ago and expressed on Instagram how he'd been struggling with depression and anxiety in the wake of his brother's suicide, which is like you would expect somebody to be struggling with those things in the wake of your family member's suicide. And one of the Skip Bayless go, you know, sounds off and talks about how that was poor leadership because his team needs to be able to, you know, have confidence in his strength to get through tough times. And it was just like to me. I read that and I was I was just almost trembling. I was so furious. I was like, how are we still at this point where we think that that's a thing? Mm-hmm. Where we think that that's good leadership to be able to just not talk about it and repress. So we're not there yet. Yeah. So are we going to talk about solutions but, so I stop getting angry? <laughs> well, there's progress. Yeah. And, because and growing there was pains, a, right? Like yeah. that, that to me screams growing pains. For sure. Yeah. But there was a huge backlash to Skip Bayless. Which and, was great. Yeah. And I would say he's probably aware that there was going to be backlash and now how many people are talking about that idiot uh, because you know he was just doing it in my opinion for headlines um which yeah. we, you know we don't have to give too much time for somebody like that and but there's people out there and and there's there's i'm sure people who agreed with him um because that is kind of the old guard that's the, that the is, kind yeah. of thing that we're trying to overcome and and yeah chris growing pains and and how yeah, we get man. there is is by being leaders, I think, by setting a standard, if, if this is what we want, you know, be the change. Um, we need to, uh, for, for the sake of our, our future boys, um, you know, we need to be better than this. And we need to overcome those stereotypes. And we want it to happen fast. And the term that comes to mind is generational. It's going to take a generation and maybe two generations Absolutely. for this change to continue to happen to a point where there'll be a tipping point and maybe we're we're near that tipping point now i mean the fact that you guys have this amazing podcast and the quality of the guests and the quality of the conversation that you do is obviously one strong indicator right mm-hmm. you know i, I want to go back to your psychology when you wrote the article mm-hmm. right um was it was it did you write it for therapeutic reasons or mm-hmm. did you write it to to minister to other people or we'll we'll change a different we'll change that word did you write it to to help other people connect with other people. I love how you change that word. <laughs> well, just to make it more accessible to everybody. Well, thank you for asking that. It, it's yeah. definitely both. It mm-hmm. definitely felt like the right thing to do. If if I felt like I was doing it for other people exclusively, I don't know if I would have done it. Mm-hmm. But I definitely felt like it helped me express my love for my dad. Mm-hmm. And it, as I was writing it, I felt proud of it. And mm-hmm. I felt happy to share it with people Mm -hmm. and i actually even shared it on my facebook page and i and i wrote in the comment this may be the last time i ever write about my dad and it was that was coming from some sadness and and maybe trying to repress and and but it felt really good to get that out there and just had some tremendous comments on there from people saying hopefully it's not the last time you write about your dad thank you for Mm -hmm. sharing this and and i just that ability to reach people I think I really enjoy and that's why you know I don't ever want to stop writing that column at least not now is it gives me an opportunity and I I think 
increasingly listening to your guests and your show has actually given me more courage to want to be more vulnerable just with that platform, for instance. And so I think uh, two things in there is that both would be the answer to that, but that it also um, has created more opportunity to show courage and you guys mentioned Brene Brown the odd time and she's absolutely one of my favorite oh, people man. to just listen to I just For like sure. just love listening to her and and you know not having ever dug into any of her research and questioned her numbers or it's just like it feels like truth yeah, yeah and I think I don't need to dig into numbers with her, her research because it just feels like truth and, and mm. being around truth and being around you fellas and, and getting to listen to people that you have on your show that are just amazing people. It just, it's those moments that keep pushing you forward. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And you have to be around it. If you're not around it, you stop learning, then, you know, you, you lose momentum in a hurry. Yeah. So you mentioned vulnerability and it's one of our, our key values really. Um, but it's, it's scary. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, being emotionally vulnerable was not something that I was comfortable with unless that emotion was anger. Um, and so it's been a a work in progress for me for sure. Um, and, and Chris, you said, uh, you know, you, you've experienced with that as well with, with repressing. And I just wanted to ask your experience of writing that article, which you may have had some hesitation with, um, being that open, being that just, you know, putting it all out there. Um, was there hesitation? And then after being that vulnerable, what did you learn about vulnerability? Surprisingly, there wasn't a ton of hesitation. It just felt right from the get-go to write about him. And, and what started that was actually, ironically, one year earlier, the August column from the year before, I was taking my dad downtown for an appointment. He was at a point where he was still living on his own and I could still trust him to eat and not leave the toaster going, but he couldn't drive and he couldn't find places anymore. And we were downtown. He was looking kind of shaggy and he'd always been pretty neat and he needed a haircut. And we're walking downtown and we see that green door, the heritage building downtown. And I see a barber pole and I was like, well, this is a cool moment. Mm-hmm. Dad, why don't we go check this out over here? And and this is what I wrote about in that August column was we, we walked to the door and there's this great big smiling guy with a great big mustache and beard named Daryl. And, and it's this throwback barbershop, <laughs> a really cool spot. He's got these old chairs, his great grandfather's barber chairs <laughs> where he cuts people's hair. And <laughs> right sitting on the on the desk is this old NCR cash register. And dad's business was cash registers. That's how he started. He started in cash registers. That was the start of his business career. And it was just this amazing moment where everything fell into place. We all get those moments. You feel like you're in flow and just Mm -hmm. where you're supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time I wrote about dad. And the first time I wrote about something that personal. And it gave me permission. I think I gave myself permission to then write about him and going through the process of being bedside with him and him about to take his last breaths and, and being okay with that. Mm-hmm. Well, and the reason why I asked the question about why, like why did you write it and why Andrew was, was getting at the vulnerability and stuff, because mm-hmm. I think it can be a bit of a roadmap forward 
for men and, and for all of us on how we can move from a place of repression to a place of being open and vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And I think it starts with us that our soul needs it. Like it's, I say therapeutic because we can't not do it because if we, if we don't do it, we know what happens. The body starts to break down. That's what ulcers are from. That's what disease is from, dis-ease. Mm-hmm. This begins to happen. We have to do it. We can't not do it. And then by doing that, it begins to benefit all those around us. Yeah. And so to, to me, th- th- there's a roadmap in there. And you, you maybe didn't even know the, you know the macro story of this whole thing of why you did it. But I can see for people listening, like, where can I get started? Just begin to just kind of like, you know, as I, as I open my arms, be, begin to begin to share those those cracks a little bit with with people yeah. and begin to say maybe it's even just an expression like oh man that was that was uh that was a hard one to to watch or whatever you just share a moment of vulnerability yeah. um, do you ever think back yeah. to some of those most courageous moments you've ever done yeah. for for me it was jumping off this huge cliff in Port Alberni, right. the other side of the lake that was the highest cliff I'd ever seen. And I got dared to do it and I did it <laughs> and, and it was survived. Stu- it was dumb. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I was sore for a good couple of weeks after, <laughs> but I look back on that as one of those courageous moments. Yeah. And, and I think for people right. that are listening, that maybe are at that point that, you know, I still consider myself learning and, and developing and, and trying to get better at this stuff, but it's like the new courage. It's like right. the new moment of daring. And if you take that leap, mm. you'll feel great afterwards because mm-hmm. it takes the weight off the shoulders, right? And and there's just that opportunity to release it. And Brene also talks about that great story with her daughter about the marble jar in the class, right? And you just want to share it with people that are filling up the marbles in your jar, not right. the people that are necessarily putting a few in and then maybe taking a couple out. Right. The people yeah. that continue to fill that jar, mm. it's got to be the right person too. And I think that's also an important point. Yes, for sure. There's a time and place. Time and place yeah. and person. Yeah. yeah. And it it's not going to happen overnight. It takes it takes time. Whew. Years and counting. Yeah. Um, so perhaps as a final question, and that's um, one directed to both of you, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so Is it speed? Like... <laughs> yeah, you buzz in. It's yeah, not yeah, family yeah. feud. Not although oh, I'll make it look good. You can <laughs> answer in the form of a question. <laughs> yeah, we're maybe not that far from family feud actually with the conversation that we've been having. But um, I, I want both of you have sons, and so I kind of wanted to put this out there as a as a message to to all of the young men out there, and maybe specifically to your sons. Um, what what is your hope for them when it comes to being comfortable with emotions or, or speaking your truth to start somewhere to start somewhere everybody's at a different level different experience um, I think it's identifying who that person is as we spoke about a moment ago pick somebody that you think is somebody safe I think safety is really important and then share something you don't have to share everything I think I personally misinterpreted Brene's vulnerability when I first heard her talk about that. I thought it meant that I had to share everything and bear my whole soul. And, mm-hmm. and, and I confused it with honesty and it's mm-hmm. not honesty. It's vulnerability is more about being okay to share your emotions. I think that's sort of how I interpret it. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you would say. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a very good point about the honesty and vulnerability. For sure, it doesn't mean you now need to go on Facebook every day and just like air your dirty laundry. Mm-hmm. A lot of people do. 
and, and there's moments for that but you see and it's a painful moment to see people using facebook as therapy well and they are like Don't social media is is like you know i just i kind of met you at a business mixer and now now you've ushered me into the most private moment of your life um you know that's i guess for people to decide in the moment but but as i reflect on my boy the boy that i'm so proud of um 19 years old he he's he's a boy man you know as mm-hmm. we know adolescents last till 30 now they tell us which means they may or may not live at home till that long <laughs> maybe that's why they are living at home that long um but i think about ethan and i think um you know as fathers we believe we know our son's true selves because we've seen them grow up mm-hmm. right and and we see them trying to struggle to do the do they see what we see and do we even see everything they see and we don't and so part of what the message i want for ethan is to be like he's always been highly intuitive um sensitive kind person and knows himself well but somewhere along the the way um like most men he was taught that those things aren't useful in this moment Mm -hmm. and so he abandoned some of those things and and i just hope that uh that he can have the courage to follow his truth and be who he is because he's a spectacularly wonderful man and um and i want to ask for forgiveness for the times that i haven't been a good roadmap for that and so that's what i would say to him well clearly ethan's got a great role model to follow and i think for those of us that struggle a bit with perfection we we feel like we need to create these perfect children and and i i catch myself trying to mm-hmm share everything i know with my boys and it's probably too much and i think it's probably one of those things we're like okay enough dad like i i got this and i we have to let them mm-hmm. grow we have to let them have pain and yeah it's the weird um paradox is that people don't grow them and and learn if they're not going through hard times when unfortunately our sons watch more than they listen yeah. Right. And so they we're great only, at talking. They only watch, don't yeah. they? Yeah. We're great at talking and, and sending texts and sending links and sending articles and, and saying, saying all the right things, but mm-hmm. they watch how we behave. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, that's, I that's, think Ethan's going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and something you said there, John, about, uh, finding your true self. I mean, that's, that's your story yeah, as well. Absolutely. Um, that, that's all of us. And, and, um, the the thing is like our our journeys are going to look different for every single one of us and the the important thing a, a big takeaway for this conversation is that our true selves has has a broad range of emotions and it's so vital to gain comfort with all of them and and be able to express all of them because that that is a true complete human so uh and i hear you guys talk a lot about you don't fix, right? Like it's not read a book or practice a new practice and it's fixed, right? It's just start somewhere, bite-sized piece, look for that little stir inside, follow that and see what comes next. And the rest of the road shows itself, doesn't it? And you never arrive. That's Mm -hmm. the thing. The obstacle course never ends. You look at our logo, it's just a path that goes and continues. And that's what it is. We never stop walking it.
Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have to be kind to ourselves as well. So if, if, if you're listening right now and you're feeling like, boy, I should have been better. And now you're starting the cycle of like, damn, you know, how could you get this wrong? Oh, you've dropped the ball. That is an unhealthy place to be. Just, just see it as like, this is who I used to be. But now that I know better, I can do better, as you said. Mm. So now we know better. So let's begin to do better together. Know better, do better. Yeah. Thanks a lot, gentlemen. This was a pleasure. That was a lot of fun. And before we wrap, if I may, I will unwrap. What is this? I think I couldn't help but bring you guys a little gift for the gift in the podcast. You guys have given me so get so many gifts from your episodes and the people you've had on. And these are more like probably going to be re-gifts because you know you'll read this and there'll be somebody that'll show up that needs it. And then I've heard you reference this guy before. Matt Foley, motivational speaker. <laughs> yeah. It's not going to fit you, unfortunately. It's, it's uh, like a kid size, but okay. I know that at some point in time, you'll find the right person that will really appreciate. <laughs> that not going to amount to jack squat. Exactly. How not in to a van. live in a van down, down by the river. <laughs> Amazing. Thanks so much, Chris. Thank you, fellas. This has been a real honor. I'm blessed to be with you today. Thank you. Thanks. And that's the episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you can find us at all the usual places. ObstacleCoursePodcast.com. We're very active on social media, Instagram and Facebook at Obstacle Course Podcast. And speaking of Facebook, we have a great new growing community called the Obstacle Course Community that you can join, dialogue with Andrew and I and your fellow listeners about the previous week's episode and any obstacles you're dealing with. And we do appreciate reviews, whether it's on iTunes, Google, Facebook, whatever. It helps people find the podcast. And it's nothing to do with our fragile egos. Well, uh, you know, we just like to hear back from great people just like yourselves. Thanks for listening, everybody. Keep pushing through those obstacles.